Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday School class, 1 Samuel chapter 13 in your Bibles. 1 Samuel 13, and we're continuing on in our series through 1 Samuel. We looked at the rising leadership of Samuel. Now we're looking at the rising leadership of Saul. Over the last number of weeks, we've been considering King Saul in chapters 8 to 11, and we looked at the, his rise. Now this week, we're now looking at his leadership. And uh, actually, last week, we began to look at his leadership in chapter 12, and we saw the grief over the king when Samuel... Uh, rebuked the nation of Israel three, the third time and the fourth time. In his parting speech, Samuel reminded the nation of Israel of their stellar, of his stellar testimony. Not only did he seek to instill in them the necessity of following the test of his testimony that he had left behind, he also rebuked them for the third and fourth time, as we mentioned already, for rejecting the theocracy and rebellion, uh, in, in, and their rebellion in asking for a king. Finally. He challenged them and their king to wholeheartedly follow the Lord together. And that was last week. This week now we're going to consider the character of their kingdom. There's 23 verses. We won't read them all. Let's read the first few verses. Then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Saul reigned one year. And when he reigned two years over Israel, <coughs> excuse me, Saul chosen 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people, he sent every man to his tent. Let's pray. Father, I do pray you bless your word. Pray you meet with us, Lord, this morning. Thank you, Lord. You've been blessing our teaching times and our preaching times. It comes from you, Lord. All blessing comes from you. If you don't bless, there is no blessing to be had. We recognize that. So, Lord God, I pray you'd really minister to us this morning. And you'd speak to, to the deep needs of our heart. Please, Lord, help us to come out here uh, out at the house of the Lord this morning closer to you, more confident in you, yes. more encouraged in you, yes. ready to serve the, the Holy One that dwells between the cherubims in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> just as Samuel had prophesied, as Saul settled into his position, he began to choose his an entourage. Perhaps Israel felt really good about this at first. They were now like the nations around them, and this would mark a time of change. Look at verse 3. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! Now, just like all the nations around them, Israel began wars and battles. Now, why do you think Israel began wars and battles? This is new. Not since Joshua had they begun wars and battles. Why do you think Israel began wars and battles? The same reason they're still at it. It's the 7th of October. Okay. Well, they didn't begin that war. Hamas started that war. Why did Israel begin this one? I think we're well, hearing the same game over. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It is the game over. Yeah. Now, yeah, they didn't start that one on the 7th of October, but what's going to be the end of it? They get more They're land. going to get more land. Absolutely. That is, that, I think the whole world knows that. And some are really angry at it, but that's another story. Now, before this, Israel was just defending her own territory. Okay, She was always on the defensive. You read through the, to the battles and the skirmishes and the wars they were involved in. It was always other nations coming against them. This time, they were being the aggressor, so to speak. Things changed with the leadership of their new their, their new king. Perhaps change was necessary. As Byron's puts it, 
This was a war of independence. David continued that policy. Let's go to, somebody read 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1, raise your hand. Okay, Jolly. Um, 1 Kings 4, 24. 1 Kings 4, 24. 1 Kings 4, Eileen, can you get that? And that will do for the moment. Okay, actually Amos 9, 7. Amos 9, 7. Amos 9, 7. Amos 9, 7. Okay, Al, you get Amos 9, 7. Okay, now. So David continued that policy of starting wars, so to speak. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired that the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joel and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and Esau, Rabbah, who David tarried still at Jerusalem. So David didn't go out himself, but his army went forward, didn't they? And they went out to battle. And that's the way it was back then. You know, we have lived in a time of relative peace. That time is fast coming to an end. Okay, we're seeing conflict in Ukraine. We're seeing conflict in the Middle East. We're see, we, we, we hear of conflict in other countries. Brethren, it's always been going on. It's just not world news. Now, why do you think that, that the wars and conflicts in other countries aren't making the world stage? Why aren't they making the news? Why is little Israel with 8 million people, this tiny little country, about half the size of Ireland or a third the size of Ireland, I think it's half the size of Ireland, why is such a little country making such a big deal on the world stage when there's wars in other places where millions of people are being massacred and it's not even making the news? What's the difference? I think because of Israel has chosen. God's chosen. That's definitely one reason. Why else? I think another reason is that uh, that's it. when Christ comes in the beginning of the establish his yeah. kingdom, yeah. he's going to do Jerusalem as a quarter as a resource. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, religious sects, Islam is fighting for it, Catholicism is fighting for it, Christian yeah. fighting for it, mm -hmm. and that's why. I think they don't know what he's doing, they don't know. So this is prophetic. This is prophetic, okay? Okay, that's another reason. So you're saying it's Israel, you know, in the Bible, you're sort of saying the same thing. Okay, okay, good. Why else? Why else are they making such a big deal? Yes? Right. Yeah, the, the Arab nations don't want to recognize Israel as a, as a country, and Ireland sort of is sort of joining that, although they're, they're playing, talking out of both sides of their mouth. Anyway, it's, it's shameful. It's really shameful the way Ireland is responding to all this. They need to make up their minds and stick with it. Okay. Anybody else? Why else? Yes. Well, Islam is a growing religion. Okay. And they're surrounded by Muslim countries. Right. Uh, and they just came to Jesus. Okay. Well, that's true. But not not just Israel. Why? Why? Why are the, this battle in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia so publicized? Why is a battle of in in going on in that little strip of land that's called Israel. Why is that so publicized? And why is what's going on in Nigeria never talked about? What's going on in other countries, other African countries, or other countries around the world that nobody really talks about those genocides? Why? Why? Why Israel? Why Ukraine? What, what's it all about, folks? And it's not about religion. I don't believe it's about religion at all. What's it about? It's about the land because that has been since uh, the time of uh, Abraham. Yeah. When uh, Isaac was yeah. fighting, Ishmael was fighting Isaac. Right. And then the fighting uh, had been for long. And, and that's true. There is historic fighting. Yeah, right. But what about Ukraine? Let's leave Israel. What about Ukraine? Why is Ukraine such big news? 
because they have the backing of the United States. Yes. United States has a hand in both these conflicts, by the way. Okay. United States destabilized the Middle East, okay? But, okay, so let's pull the USA out of it for a little bit, just for a little bit, because uh, what is it all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. Follow the money trail. It's all about money. What's going on in, in the African countries, they already have the gold mines, they already have the diamond mines. They don't care about the people. Do you understand what I'm saying? The world state doesn't care about it unless there's money involved. You with me here? The media's always look, it's always about the money, follow, following the money trail. Brethren, the wars in the Bible was all were all about gaining territory. Why? Why? Because they wanted to be richer. Wars have always been about money. People say, oh, religion starts wars. That's not true. It's not true. It's not religion that starts war. It's greedy people who are trying to access or to gain more money. Isn't it? They hide behind religion. They hide behind, that's a good way of looking yeah, at it. Yes. They hide behind religion because really what they're looking for. And, and it's the little guys who are involved in the conflict that believe it's about the religion. But the big guys are, are, are counting the, the, the millions of euros are coming into their coffers, or the billions more to the point, or even to the trillions, you know? So it's always about greed and selfishness and money. War is always about money, isn't it? And territory, power and money, isn't it? And that's what we see all the way through. So in other words, when you see stuff going on in the news, you, we've got to filter it. I was talking to somebody recently, and uh, they were giving out about what's going on in, in, in um, in the Middle East, and I just made the statement, it's all one-sided, isn't it? You can't look at the news, RTE news from the Independent, they're just so liberal, and they give you completely the wrong slant. And RTE is in the news all the time. Do you know, do you know what's really interesting? The Independent is the one lambasting RTE all the time. Have you noticed that? Every single day, the Independent has something against the RTE, in <laughs> other sort of way. So, but the point is, they're all ultra-left. And so if you want to find out what the truth is, follow the money. Who's gaining out of all this? Do you understand? Then it sort of it makes things a lot more understandable. So here, here are the battles going on back then. It's always been about greed. It's always been about money. And now Israel has a new king. They want to expand their territory. Rather, they want to become a richer country. They just do. And there's the religious side of it you're talking about, Willie, and both of you are talking about, where they want to get the, the, the land that God had promised to Abraham, right? So there's two aspects going on there, but both are there, you understand? And depending on the king, whether he's righteous or not, his motive is, is decided as to whether it's money or as to whether it's, 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 it's enlargement of territory to get what God promised Abraham, because it, it depends on who is in power, right? Okay, well, let's move on past that. So David continued the policy of enlarging the land, and he needed to, but Solomon didn't. Solomon was a man of peace. That's 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 24. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsat even to Azar, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. Now, for those of you there on a Wednesday night, we know why Solomon uh, was a man of peace. Why was he able to expand his territory as a man of peace? What was he doing instead? Getting lots of marriages. Okay, he extended his he extended his territory through nuptial agreements. Okay, so because of the battles fought by his father, uh, Solomon was also able to be a man of peace. 
because David did the battling. And brethren, we do that for our children. We try to do that for our children. We try to gain some spiritual territory so that we can pass on an inheritance to our children that they don't have to fight the same battles we've had to fight. Isn't that true? Now, can I say something to you on this? Our children still have to fight their own battles. Because if they don't fight their own battles, they'll just fall over spiritually. Does that make sense? Everyone has to fight their own battles. But David fought a lot of battles for Solomon. Now, through double aggression is sometimes necessary, passivity is preferred. If Israel had have been happy to live under theocratic rule, they would most likely not have been a nation that would have risen up against other nations. I'm not saying they wouldn't have defended themselves. I'm, I'm saying that they wouldn't necessarily have come across as the aggressor. The Lord might well have brought more lasting peace to them, subduing the nations around them. Okay? Now that now that they had a king, they would now war on an ongoing basis. So you'll see a, a, a shift in Israel. In, under the judges, they'd have wars when aggressors would attack them. Under, the, under theocratic, or sorry, under a monarchy, they would now be going after nation. They were constantly battling, constantly in wars. So you'll see a shift there in their, in, their, uh, in, in, their, in their foreign policy, in their international policy. Now, we're talking about verse 3. We're talking about the Philistines in verse 3. I'm going to give you some insight regarding the Philistines. Some things we need to know. Does anybody, what do you know about the Philistines, by the way? And then we can add to your knowledge here. What do we know about the Philistines so far? They're aggressive. Giants came from the Okay, so they had giants. Yep, absolutely. We know that. Okay, aggressive. Yep, I would agree with that. What else do we know about the Philistines? Do you remember the Vikings, to be honest with you, you know? Somebody else. We share that that was history, and they are more of a bone in the, in the, what's it called, in the flesh of Israel, because they always go to hunting from Tatel and the right. of, of the Jalim. I think they are the original, they are the original owner of that land, in that land of Gedala, and the facilities. Okay. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. This is this is an interest. This you're raising some interesting points. Let's talk about it. Okay, the Philistines were not a distant nation or a surrounding nation. They were a sea people. That's what Philistine means. It means sea people that dwelled uh, among them, and they dwelled on the coasts because they were the sea people, right? That's why they remind me of the Vikings. Okay, they were not residuals of the Canaanites. Okay, they were immigrants. Amos chapter 9 verse 7 states that they were, um, somebody read Amos 9 7, who did I give that to? Okay. Then are you not as children of the Ethiopians Okay, so Amos 9-7 tells us that they were rem the remnant of the maritime district of Kaptor. You say, what's a, what's a maritime district? They are not under national authority. They have their own authority, so to speak. They were mentioned in the genealogical table among the descendants of Mizraim, Genesis 10-14. It is generally assumed that Kaptor represents Crete, okay, according to one commentary. Anyway, they had settled in the Holy Land before Abraham. Okay, that's what you're talking about there. Okay, Genesis chapter 26. Let's pass out some scriptures. Genesis 26, verse 1 and 8. Genesis 26, verse 1 and 8. Okay, um, uh, Dex, can you get Genesis 26, 1 and 8? Um, Mary, can you get Joshua 15, verse 45 to 47? Joshua 15, 45 to 47. Uh, Jud 
Oh, these are, I have lots of scriptures. Joshua 13, verse 2. Joshua 13, verse 2. Okay, do you, can you get that? Uh, Judges 3, 3. Uh, if you can get that, uh, Sarah, Judges 3, 3. Judges 1, 18. Uh, if you can get that, Johnny. Brother Paul, can you get Judges chapter 3, verse 31. Judges 3, verse 31. And then I need someone to read Judges chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 16. <laughs> That's a joke. I'm not going to have to give you that. That's four chapters. <laughs> See if you want to catch out there. I appreciate the willingness. Okay, that was just a bit of humor there. Okay, so let's move on. So these, these were people in the genealogical table. As was already mentioned, they were in the land before, before Abraham came. Okay, uh, Genesis chapter 26, verse 1 and verse 8. Okay, so that's probably all we need to read because that basically says that Abimelech was the king of the Philistines and Abraham was there and he went to the king of Philistines already in the land. So they were there, okay? These sea peoples were already there, okay? They advanced northward to the region of Philistia. The southern region of the land they occupied had been assigned, assigned to Judah, okay? So they used to uh, occupy the southern land, but that belonged to Judah. Then they went up north, okay? So that would be Joshua 15, verse 45 to 47. I followed her towns and her villages from Ekron even unto the sea, all that lay near Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod with her towns and her villages, Gaza with her towns and her villages, unto the river of Egypt and the great sea and the border thereof. Okay, that's a lot in there, but basically Judah, okay? And mentioning all those five nations, Ash, or the five cities of the Philistines, Ashdod, I'm going to probably forget them. Ashdod, Ekron, Gaza. Um, help me here. What were the other two? No, they're the only ones I mentioned. Yeah. Gath. The borders there are all the yeah. same. Yeah, all, all, all those. Okay, so I'm missing one. Okay, but anyway, but they were all assigned to Judah. Okay. And no portion of it, however, was conquered in the lifetime of Joshua. So no portion of these lands... Was, uh, was conquered in the time of Joshua. Joshua 13, verse 2. This is the land that he that he made it, all the borders of the Philistines and all Geshu. Or, what's that? Geshu. Uh, that big word anyway. <laughs> is that it? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, so the point is that the, God gave Abraham the land of the Philistines, but the seed of Abraham... Israel did not conquer that, the territory of the Philistines, okay? And even after Joshua's death, no permanent conquest was effected. Judges 3, verse 3. Yeah, they were fighting over the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Syrians, and the Hittites, and brought them back heavy, uh, from Mount Sabal to their land, until they were great in of Okay, and then it was only temporary. Their conquest was only temporary. That would be Judges one eighteen. Judges one eighteen. And also Judah took Gaza with the cost thereof, and Ashkelon with the cost thereof, and Ashkelon with the cost thereof. Okay, I, it's hard when I pick part portions of the verses. You'd have to read the whole passage, but. Okay, as you read through the book, book of Judges, you can see it, it's really clear, okay? Now, 
So individual Israelite heroes were raised up from time to time. Okay, so name some Israelite heroes that uh, won some victories against the Philistines. Deborah. Okay, the Philistines though. Deborah, not just the Canaanites, but the, but the Philistines themselves. David. Okay, David. David. Who else? I think Jonathan was a part of it because Jonathan started the war and then I think they won victory. Yeah. Yeah, over Christ as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So do we have names? Jonathan. Yeah. The, Jonathan. The son of Oh Jonathan. Jonathan. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, Jonathan. Who else? Any famous people that won victories against the Philistines? Joshua. Well they, they, they didn't Joshua didn't get that territory at the time. Later on. We, we have the judges. Some, we have something as well, one of the judges. Samson, yeah. yeah. Samson, absolutely. Do you remember? So Samson was a victorious against the Philistines. Um, Shamgar did, the son of Anath, that's Judges 3.31. Did I give that to someone, Judges 3.31? Yeah. And after him was uh, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox god, and he also delivered Israel. Okay, and just so several people, okay. So the Israelites attribute their inability to conquer the Philistines to their lack of unity, okay? So Israel was looking at their, at, at their lack, they, they, they were under, there was this theocracy, they were under the Lord, they had prophets, they had uh, judges, but they weren't able to conquer the Philistines, and so they thought in their hearts, you know, it's because we don't have a, mark, a, a king, okay? So if we can be united together, we can, we, we can overcome the Philistines. You know, the interesting thing is that's exactly what did happen. Isn't that ironic? Okay. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 20. Did I get that to someone? First Samuel 8, 20? Okay, who wants to read that? First Samuel chapter 8, verse 20. Okay, read that. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and go out before us, and fight our battles. So that's why they wanted a king. That's why they wanted Saul. So, after Saul's great slaughter of the Philistines at Geba, that's verse 3 of chapter 13, the Philistines did not recover for 25 years. Okay, that's pretty powerful. Okay, so that was probably a, a, a point where they justified their position for asking a king. After David's victories, the whole Philistines, uh, the whole Philistine... Um, I, I, this is poorly written. Sorry, my mistake. I type was there. I, all the Philistines were included into, into Solomon's empire. So, so after David's victory, the Philistines no longer were a power. They were no longer a nation. They were just assimilated with everybody else. The bitterness between Israel and the Philistines continued to the time of the Babylonian captivity, according to Ezekiel chapter 25. But the last mention of the Philistines was during the intertestamental period, and that's in Maccabees. Three to five, you don't have to read that. <laughs> okay. But the point is this, that the, if you, who knows of any Philistines today? They're gone, aren't they? So, but we can see the history of it all the way through, and we can see how it all fits together. Okay, so let's, let's rehearse some things we mentioned about the Philistines, okay? First thing we wanna say about the Philistines is, what's the first thing we know about the Philistines? So what we've talked about so far, putting it all together. They were sea people. They were sea people, what else do we know? They were strangers. They were strangers. And they settled down when? 
No, not the year, but, but, but in relation to Israel. Before Abraham. Okay, so they predated Abraham. They were in the land. They had their own territory. Uh, what did God do with their territory? God gave it to the people of Israel. He gave to the people of Israel. Where was their territory? Along the coast, but in what portion of Israel? Judah. Judah. Good. Okay. And uh, and then we know that they had skirmishes all the way along. And then finally, who subdued them, if you like, once and for all? Yeah, David would have subdued them once and for all. And uh, and when was the last time they, they were heard about the Philistines? When did we say? I said it quickly, but maybe you didn't catch it. The intertestamental period. What's the intertestamental period? Time between the oldest, the, the 400 silent years. Okay, good. All right. So now we have that picture there. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. And all Israel heard, saying that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines, and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. Now, look, this is unbelievable. 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen and people as a sandwich is on the seashore in multitude and they came and pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth Haven. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. The Philistines were quite the force to be reckoned with. For a nation with five cities in Judah, they managed together, they managed to put together some army. How do you think the Philistines were able to put together such an army? How did they do that? Any thoughts? So they have been preparing for the war that they are ready. So they decided to attack them again. Yeah. They, are ready they were warring people, weren't they? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? How were they able to put out su put such an army together against against um, Israel? Like thirty six thousand was it? Is that what we read? Thirty six thousand. Yeah. That's unbelievable. You wouldn't read that anywhere else. Possible. I mean, people who dwelt on the sea, who plundered other nations, they probably gained a lot of money. Like you think about the Vikings, you know, they, they gained a lot of money by plundering nations, right? So I, I would compare the Philistines with the Vikings. Yes? Well, would they have, when they went into other countries, taking slaves or captives, and then yeah. they fight with us yeah. or against they, us? That's, I, that's the way I'm looking at it. How would they get, like there are five cities among the nation of Israel, how were they able to have people as a sand of the seashore? Because they had, they used other people, they used mercenaries, they used whatever they used, but they, they were able to amass some army. You know, do you know what I find absolutely amazing? You look back at history, how did Germany almost take over the whole of the Western world? How did they do that? Aggression, blitzkrieg, you know, they're fast in, fast out again. But it's amazing to think they were able to take over a country like France or a country like Poland, able to put their troops there and yet be able to continue to take over the rest of the world and, and still have enough troops to do so. The rest of, the, the, of Europe, should I really say, as they move towards it. It's amazing, isn't it? These nations are extremely well organized, very, very, very powerful. The Philistines were a nation like that, okay? They also produced giants. First Samuel chapter 10, verse 23. Raise your hand. First Samuel 10, 23. Who's going to read that? 
Okay, please, Jolly, Jolly, you're doing a lot of volunteering. I appreciate that. Debbie, I think I saw your hand. Well, can you go First Samuel 17, verse 4? First Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. So, um, 10, verse 23. And they were on a bench, Tim, Tim, and when he blew the most of the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upwards. So, who is this person we're talking about who is higher than the rest of the people from his shoulders and upwards? Who's that talking about? Saul. Saul, okay? So, here's Saul, taller than the rest of the people, okay? And now compare Goliath, you mentioned Goliath, compare Goliath now to Saul. Goliath was a monster. That guy was tall. John likes to look at videos of people who are really tall. So John and I were looking at these 10 of the world's tallest people in modern times. You know, and does anybody know the tallest guy in re recent history? Do you know his name? No? No? I used to look at these talks, but Robert Wadlow, okay? He was nearly nine feet tall. I think he was eight foot 11 or something like that. One of the tallest people in modern times. And you have pictures of other people and they're absolutely massive, really, really tall. And, and like, they're scary. They're, like, you see that their head and shoulders above everyone. That was Goliath and, 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 and little Saul. And then you've got little Saul and then Saul's little people. Does anybody know the average height of Israelites back then? Five feet. Five feet. The average height of Israelites was about five feet. So some of you ladies out there would be giants compared, <laughs> compared to, the, to the Israelites back then. So I'm just saying that's the way it was back then. I believe it was Josephus that told us that information. But the Philistines were a force to be reckoned with. They were able to come up with 30,000 chariots. 36,000, whatever it is. Sisera had 900, according to Judges chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Did I give that to someone? Judges 4, 2 and 3? Did I give it? Actually, Debbie, I gave you first Samuel 17, verse 4, didn't I? Do you want to read that for me, please? Uh, and there, and there was a Six cubits in a span. How big is a cubit? Does anybody know? 18, Eighteen inches. So a cubit is from here <coughs> to the tip of your middle finger, okay? So the average is about 18 inches. The Egyptian cubit is 21 inch inches. Presuming it's a, it's a Hebrew cubit, 18 inches, one and a half feet, six cubits is nine feet, and the span is the rest of it. The man was nearly 10 feet tall. That's really, really, really tall. You say, how tall is 10 feet? It's the ceiling. He's, his head will be nearly touching the ceiling. Isn't that amazing to think of that? It's sort of scary, isn't it? Okay, so he was going up against everyone. Okay, now the Philistines uh, had about 36,000 chariots. Sisera had 900, and according to Judges 4, 2, and 3. And they had an innumerable army. The fear produced. You imagine you're coming up against the Philistines like Saul. Here's Saul. Okay, coming up against the Philistines, the fear must have been overwhelming. Commentators mentioned that an army having so many chariots was unheard of. I'm going to make some presumptions regarding how the Philistines had uh, so many chariots. Anybody want to make some suggestions as to how they could have so many chariots when this was unheard of? Spoil of war. Spoil of war? Good. Definitely. Anybody else? <clears throat> were they blacksmiths and you have to make them? That's what I would say. 
That's what I say. So sport of war and blacksmiths. Do you remember the Bible says that there was no blacksmiths in Israel because the, uh, and they weren't they weren't able to make their own tools, and only Jonathan had a sword. So the Philistines had the upper hand. So they were back blacksmiths. They would have been able to make. So be, they would have either taken them from war or else, to, or both, uh, and also made them. So they probably all had their own personal chariots. That would be my guess about the whole thing. So this would have been overwhelming for Israel. <clears throat> so without the Lord as a recourse, would their king now save them? Look at verse six and seven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait. What's a word? What's a, a straight mean? What's that mean? Okay, exactly. So, what is a straight? What is a straight? It's a narrow strip of land, isn't it? So they're being hemmed in. Okay. So when they saw that they were uh, in a in, in a straight, where am I now? I'm looking at the scripture here. Verse six. For the people were distressed. Does anybody want to translate that in their own, or, or, or explain that in their own line, in their own words? They were distressed. Give me some words, some synonyms for distressed. Panic. Panic. They were all having panic attacks. Wouldn't you? <laughs> Seriously. Anybody else? They were distressed. Anybody else? Full of fear, absolutely. Okay, so uh, when the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and rocks and high places and in pits, I mean, they were looking for anywhere to hide. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, so they went over Jordan. They went from one side of the River Jordan to the other side of the River Jordan. Okay, so they went from the uh, went over to the east over the River Jordan. Went over to the east as far because the west side is where the Israelites or where the Philistines were. Okay, in the region of Judah. So they went over the river to try and get away from them. Okay, to the other side, to the east side of Israel. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now. The people were distressed. Literally, they were squeezed, pressed together. Second Corinthians chapter one verse eight. Who wants to read that? Second Corinthians one eight. Raise your hand. Second Corinthians one eight, please. Okay, do you get the second Corinthians chapter one verse eight? So unnumbered Israelites versus innumerable Philistines seemed a very lopsided conflict. Okay. The Israelites felt the whole situation was completely out of control. That's what the word distressed means. They were panicked. Panic gripped every man. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse eight, please. We would not, we would not brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out and of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. So Paul was going through this uh, in his missionary journeys. And they were so distressed by the pressures of the ministry, by the conflict, by the persecution. They were so overwhelmed that they, 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 they were, their, their life was out of them. That is how Israel felt with the Philistines after them. Now, with that said, okay, so we've painted a big, very big picture here, okay. Why do you think Jonathan attacked a Philistine outpost under these circumstances? Jonathan was the one that started the whole ball rolling, didn't he? Why? Why do you think Jonathan did this? I think the reason is because uh, 
according to this place. I think they, they was for the first time, I think they divided themselves into three groups. Okay. So it guides them. So I think they are just my small group that is left. Yeah. And it's very easy for Jonathan to fight them, so to confront those smaller group that we don't confront in other major groups. Well, do, do you think that, um, you know, <clears throat> when you attack, uh, like those ships that were by the Red through the Red Sea when the when they were attacked, do you think there's going to be a, like a, a a reaction from the United States and from other countries, and then a reaction from your man, your man, you know, all, all these other countries getting involved? Whenever you when you attack an outpost, it's an act of war, isn't it? When when the when the Hamas went in and took a couple of hundred prisoners, was that not an act of war? So my point is that when Jonathan went out against the Philistines, that was an act of war. It was an act of aggression. It was a launching of war. So um, I know what you're saying, it was a small outpost, but all the Philistines were ready to gather. Do you not think Jonathan knew that? Yes. There's a saying, the first line of defense is Okay. So Jonathan probably wanted to take them by surprise and it would have thrown the Philistines True. their thinking. But then they regrouped. Yeah. Why do you think Jonathan did that? Do you think Jonathan knew there would be such a massive reaction? Oh, the bear. What was that? Oh, the bear. Oh, the bear. But do you think he knew? Of course. Of course he knew. Do you think he was shocked when 36,000 chariots came up against him? I'm not surprised. I don't think he was shocked. When you're going to battle, you need to know your enemy, don't you? He wasn't surprised. Why did he do it? He just wanted to let them know he was willing to take them on. Yeah, absolutely. Was he a kamikaze? Pilot? Like, was he nuts? <laughs> Do you think half his people, or maybe 95% of his people, thought he was an absolute nut? It could be. Do you think they were angry at him for doing it? What were you doing? What were you thinking, Jonathan? Do you understand what I'm saying? I think Jonathan believed God was the king. So somebody had to take the boat and to fight against the king. Absolutely. If you're going to step out by faith, you better believe you're right. <laughs> better be right. Okay? So let's think about this. Um, I would say this. Jonathan was either filled with faith or with foolish madness. It was one or the other. There's no middle ground with this one, okay? It's absolutely amazing to think that the Philistines didn't attack Saul's army. Look at verse 8. And he tarried. Okay? The Bible says that they were... The people were trembling, and he, Saul, tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. There must have been rules of war back then. Because you imagine, you've attacked them at night post, you've got 36,000 um, chariots, you've got horsemen, you've got, you've got this innumerable army just there looking at you, staring down at you. And, and Samuel says, okay, I'll be with you in a week. I mean, a week? Can you not get here a bit quicker? You know, where are you? Do you know what I'm saying? It amazes me that the Philistines waited for a week while they were staring down at the Israelites, these small little you know, lambs, these small little lambs in comparison, okay? It's amazing that the Philistines didn't wipe out Saul's army. 
What were they waiting for? Israel was the aggressor. Israel had attacked the outpost and the Philistines with their overwhelming organized army still waited and didn't attack. And I can only say two words, only God, only God. Because sometimes brethren, we face overwhelming circumstances and it only takes one thing to absolutely crush us. And that thing to, that could come across us doesn't. God is holding back that massive, massive tempest against us. Only God. You with me here? Only God. Nobody moved for seven days. The Bible says here that he tarried seven days according to the appointed time. And the people were scattered from him, the Bible says. The Philistines waited and Israel was forced to wait. It must have been torture. If I was Saul, I'd be tortured, wouldn't you? Absolutely tortured, okay? Samuel gave Saul seven days, seven days to look at an innumerable army, which could attack at any moment. Seven days to sweat over an advancement made by Jonathan. Seven days to look into the eyes of his fearful servants. And they're looking at him and saying, what are we gonna do, king? And he's like, I don't know seven days that must have been torture you know god is working god was working through samuel god was working in saul's life god was working now look at verse 9 and saul said bring hither a burnt offering this is the end of seven days and peace offerings and he offered the burnt offering. He tarried seven days according to the appointed time. Samuel came not to Gilgal, verse 8. Saul said, Bring hither the burnt offering. Samuel was late. Samuel was on Irish time. Okay? He was like, Ah, yeah, I know we have to be there. Ah, sure, we'll be grand, you know? Ah, we'll get there eventually, you know? So Samuel was taking his burial time. And uh, the Bible tells us that Saul offered the sacrifice. Why do you think Saul offered that sacrifice? Why did he make that burnt offering? According to verse 9. Peace offerings. Why? What was the purpose? Yes. God's favor. Yeah. He wanted God's favor. He wanted to bring God into his circumstances. Do we do that sometimes? Do we sometimes make emergency decisions and make emergency sacrifices because we want God to bless what we're doing? Do we sometimes do that? Absolutely, we do. But he did it the wrong way. He did, if you like, the right thing the wrong way. Samuel was a man of faith. He could wait seven days. Saul was not. And those days must have looked like a, felt like a lifetime before him. While Samuel test, trusted, Saul was tortured. And he watched his meager army diminish one by one. Saul wanted to bring God into his trial. But here's the thing, folks. He didn't know how. And I find sometimes God's precious people, or even people who aren't God's people, but people generally, do things they shouldn't do because they're trying to figure out a way to bring God into their trial. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
That's what he's trying to do. He wants to bring God into it. But it was the wrong thing to do. His faith, this faithless man didn't know what to do. So he copied the man of God. What would Samuel have done if he was here? He, he'd offer a sacrifice. Okay, well that's what I'll do. Brethren, can I just say to you, you can't copy the faith of somebody else. You need to have your own faith. You've got to stick to the scriptures. He took matters into his own hands. I'll do it. If you won't do it, I'll do it. Sometimes people are waiting for leadership to make decisions, leadership to make decisions, so they take matters into their own hands. I think even Moses did that. Moses did that when he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. You don't do those things. But we're talking about Saul, not Moses. Saul, he was the king that Israel wanted, and that's what they got. They didn't want Jehovah Jireh, uh, sorry, Jehovah, should I say, ruling them. That would require faith. They didn't want the faith, they didn't want the dedication, they didn't want the purity from idolatry. They'd rather operate by sight than faith. And Saul was happy to pay lip service to Jehovah. He was happy to display an outward show of religion. And he was probably looking to make himself look good in front of those who were still following him. He was the people's choice. He was their representative. As righteous as they were, when trouble came, he had no idea what to do. And invariably, what did he do when he didn't know what to do? He did the wrong thing. You know, I think there's a lesson there for all of us. Okay? What we need to do is learn the Bible way. Now, why should we learn the Bible way? Because if we're living the Bible way when things are good, then we know how to live the Bible way when things get tough. Are you with me here? See, that's what Saul wasn't doing. Things were good. Saul was just living after the flesh. And so when things got tough, he had no resources to lean on. He had no foundation to rest upon. Are you with me here this morning? So, brethren, let me encourage you. While God is blessing your life, be faithful and honor him in everything you do so that when things are tough, you know what to do. Amen. When things are, are going well, make sure you do everything God requires of you. Walk in his spirit. Walk in his grace. Walk in, 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 in his beauty. Walk in his fellowship. So when things are tough, you have something to depend on. Amen. Saul had no foundation. He had nothing. But we don't have to be like Saul, do we? No. We can learn. The honeymoon period was now over. Israel now had to operate with a king who didn't know how to respond under pressure. How do you respond under pressure? If you have discipline when you have no pressure, then when you're under pressure, you just do the things that you're supposed to do. Does that make sense? And then everything works out. It's great lessons we can learn from Saul. Unfortunately, sometimes we have to learn from people who do the wrong things. You understand what I'm saying? But hey, let's learn from the scriptures. Let's learn from the scriptures and uh, apply these principles so that we can avoid the pitfalls that Saul fell into. Lord, thank you so much for your word.